So this afternoon, one of the questions that was raised about was about where we're going in this practice. And I think it's very important to to keep that question in mind, but also to place the going in right where we are. And this evening what I want to talk about actually is, is a little bit of certainly about one of the places hopefully we're going and being. And I just want to encourage you not to feel disheartened if, if what I talk about tonight feels like really far away from what's happening for you right now because you are actually on the way to it. Be sure. So I want to talk about spaciousness. It's a word that we've used a few times, or maybe more than a few times, and we will continue to use it many, many more times. So I'd like to just speak to a little bit what we mean or what we're referring to when we speak about spaciousness. I'd like to begin by reading to you something from the Bhagavad Gita where it says it teaches us that even as the wonder of the stars and the heavens only reveals itself in the silence of the night, so too the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the heart. In the silence of our hearts we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe bound by love. And I want to just paraphrase that a little bit for this talk. We We feel very free to take literary liberties, by the way. Teach us that even as the wonder of the stars only reveals itself in the vastness of the sky, so too the wonder of this life reveals itself only in the spaciousness of our heart. And in the spaciousness of our heart, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe connected and liberated by love and by understanding. And we, we do and will speak a lot about spaciousness and the ways in which this quality of spaciousness really is what allows for all things to arise and pass to be seen without being held. We'll allude to the profound ease and calmness found within spaciousness and the kindness of it and the spaciousness of heart that is brought to touch all things. We'll learn about what it means in our practice and in our life to surround all things inwardly and outwardly with spaciousness and that it is that that quality of allowing and spaciousness that really allows us, enables us somewhat to see underneath some of the surface chatter and on a deeper level to lay down some of our, our, the burden of the arguments and the worries and the resistance that we can too often find ourselves in. Now, I know that we can feel like really strongly attracted not only to the word but to the possibility 
of spaciousness. We would all love to have more space. But we can also, I think, feel a little bit confused or puzzled by the word. What does it mean? What does it look like? And more importantly, how do we get it? And first, briefly, without belaboring it, I want to mention that spaciousness is not spaciness. (laughs) And this is something we may feel too familiar with, that, that kind of wandering around in a deluded, dull fog of distractedness, you know, and, and feeling this kind of, you know, just this mind that just feels shapeless and, and unfocused and spacey. And, and this quality, I think, um, that, that fitting, is, it's a very unpleasant experience. And I think spaciness is generally a really unpleasant experience. And it's a feeling, it's unpleasant spaciness because we just feel so pushed around, so governed by whatever thought or whatever mental state or whatever event or reaction is predominant in the moment. You know, and it's the feeling of that kind of instability of our hearts that they're not really a refuge. They don't feel a place to rest in. It's also more a feeling of confusion. And I'd like also to suggest that spaciousness is not an it. It's not an it. You know, I think very often people sit on a cushion, they're kind of waiting for something to happen you know, the mysterious it to come along. It's not, spaciousness is not an experience to be strived for or gained. It's really much more, as I was referring to earlier today, it's so much about radically changing the lens of how we see and how we attend to everything in our life, how we are present in all the changing moments of our mind and lives. But unlike spaciness, spaciousness has within it this quality of really remarkable balance and poise, where we just don't feel to be swept away in the current or the tide of events of our life, and yet we feel free to respond. We feel free to offer to all of those events, what they need. And in this sense, I really think that spaciousness, although we can look upon it as something remarkable or amazing, I actually feel it's the most natural way of being. And in meditation practice, rather than getting something or somewhere, in many ways this quality of homecoming is a coming back to what I hope we get a sense of is the most natural and the most sane way to be in this life and to be in our minds and to be in our hearts. And to understand, I think to understand spaciousness, I think it's really born of really understanding almost its opposite. 
because the opposite of spaciousness is not spaciness, but the opposite of spaciousness is contractedness, this sense of tightness, of being locked, of being entangled. And to discover spaciousness, almost we need to understand that process. Rather than an experience to be gained, I often think the spaciousness is really born of what falls away. What falls away. And I'll read you a a little bit of a story that illustrates this, and this is a story that some of you will know and be familiar with, but I I have no problem with being repetitious. (laughs) So the poor man had come to the end of his rope, so he went to the rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and getting worse all the time. We're poor, so poor, that my wife, my six children, my in-laws and I have to live in a one-room hut. We get in each other's way all the time. Our nerves are frayed, and because we have plenty of troubles, we quarrel. Believe me, my home is a hell, and I'd sooner die than continue living this way. The rabbi pondered the matter gravely. My son, he said, promise to do as I tell you, and your condition will improve. I promise, rabbi, said the troubled man. I'll do anything you say. Tell me, said the rabbi, what animals do you own? I have a cow, a goat, some chickens. Very well. Go home now and take all these animals into your house to live with you. The poor man was dumbfounded, but since he'd promised the rabbi, he went home and brought all the animals into his house. The following day, the poor man returned to the rabbi and cried, Rabbi, what a misfortune you've brought upon me. I did as you told me and brought the animals into the house, and now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. My house is turned into a barn. Save me, Rabbi, help me. My son, replied the rabbi serenely, go home and take the chickens out of your house. God will help you. So the poor man went home and took the chickens out of his house. But it wasn't long before he was back again to the rabbi. Holy rabbi, help me, save me. The goat is smashing everything in the house. She's turning my life into a nightmare. Go home, said the rabbi gently. Take the goat out of your house. God will help you. The poor man returned home, removed the goat, but it wasn't long. He was back running again, lamenting loud, loudly, What a misfortune you've brought upon my head, Rabbi. The cows turned my house into a stable. How can you expect a human being to live side by side with an animal? You're right, a hundred times right, agreed the Rabbi. Go straight home and take the cow out of your house. And the poor unfortunate hastened home and took the cow out of his house. Not a day had passed before he came running again to the Rabbi. Rabbi, cried the poor man, his face beaming, you've made life sweet again for me. With all the animals out of the house, it's so quiet, so roomy and so clean. What a blessing. What falls away and doesn't our mind just feel like that house? Hmm? Let me give you a few examples, a few clues, I might say about discovering spaciousness, because it's really not that far away. It's really not that far away. When you walk into this room, you notice how your attention seems to be almost naturally 
drawn to all of the things in the room. You know, the statues, the pictures, the cushions, the bell. And you notice how this waterfall of preferences and likes and dislikes for and against are stimulated by the things. You know, we should have only red cushions. You know, we should have a different kind of bell. You know, what's that thing growing out of Kuan Yin's arm? You know, I don't like that picture. You know, we should have this. You notice how the mind gets really excited by the things. And can get into a lot of arguments. Now, suppose you walk into the same room and you make a slight adjustment in the lens through which you see. And you notice and really take notice of the space in the room. And how it is the space in the room that makes room for everything. And how the space in the room doesn't actually have any argument with anything in the room, doesn't worry about it. And the space in the room is also not confined by the walls. I mean, you see the space in the room, the space that is in this room, it's boundless. It goes beyond the walls. It permeates everything. Sometimes in the practice, we suggest that you take your attention to listening and to hearing. And you notice how almost automatically when we make that suggestion, how we start to look for a sound. We look for a sound. And the same, and we usually find some. And the same process begins. We like some sounds. We don't like others. We think, wish, would, some would stay. And some, we would like to go. Even our relationship to the same sound can change. Now, I remember once sitting on a retreat and sitting beside an open window, and this little bird had a nest outside the window. And the first time I sat down, and the bird was chirping away, and, you know, of course, the thought of it, isn't that lovely? You know. Then <laughs> the bird only had three chirps that it went on and on with, for seven days, it seemed, 24 hours a day, certainly every minute I was in that room. <laughs> tweet, tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> it started to be like water torture. You know, like where, you know, does this bird have a different song? You know? That sound that was so lovely became so unlovely. Same sound. But something happened in the listening. Now, what is it like to listen without seeking a sound? And some would say that makes no sense. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the composer Sam Cage. But he said, music is only possible because of silence. The music is only possible because, because of silence. Maybe it does make sense to listen 
without seeking a sound. But to learn what it means to rest in listening without any preferences and to really sense the silence from which sounds arise. And notice the silence doesn't have any argument with any of the sounds that arise, but makes room, makes it possible for them to be there. Now in the practice, we give the encouragement at times to be mindful of your breathing, to be aware of the in-breath and the out-breath and the pause between breaths. Now notice how we can tie ourselves into an absolute knot of contractedness and argument the moment we become the breather. We're waiting for the next breath to arise. Is it the right kind of breath? You know, should it be deeper? Should it be more shallow? I've heard there's a right kind of breath. I wonder if it's the one I'm having. (laughs) But we can also learn just to pause, to know the pause, and to rest in the pause, and to discover perhaps what it means to let the breath breathe itself. Trungpa Rinpoche once came into a meditation hall like this. And he held up a very large piece of of blue paper, light blue paper, and he asked everybody to associate around it. And there seemed to be a rise, this consensus that it was the sky. So, okay, he said, and then he drew a V on its side, a notch on its side, and he asked people again, what did they see? And they said, it's a bird. And he said, no, it's actually the sky with a bird in it. It's a shift in the lens. Now, you've had plenty of opportunity, maybe more opportunity than you ever wished for, to reflect today on the nature of your mind and heart. And one of the things you may have noticed in the moments when you weren't asleep (laughs) is that they feel very full, don't they? feel very full. A waterfall, a, a tidal wave of memories, ideas, preoccupations, images, thinking. Now, what allowed you to know that? What enabled you to know that was happening? It's awareness. Your capacity to see. Your capacity to know. Now, have you noticed in that awareness of your mind, your heart, how easily we're just so drawn into the whirlpool of that content, building on it, isolating it, at times arguing with it? Now, what it, would it be like to be able to step back from some of that busyness and to rest in the seeing and the knowing just as we can rest in the listening. Awareness actually doesn't have any preferences, just as the space in the room doesn't have preferences for green or blue cushions. But thoughts and ideas and memories also appear and disappear in that seeing. Now, that seeing is what we call spaciousness. It's what we call spaciousness, the sense of ease, 
of stillness, of not holding anywhere, the sense of expansiveness and inclusiveness. Now, spaciousness, I would almost say, we might say that it's the intrinsic nature of being, but I would also say I think we learn to cultivate it. Born of understanding its opposite, contractedness. And it's a cultivation of immediacy. It's almost like remembering moment to moment that we can shift, make that little shift from being lost in the particulars or in the contents to sense the space around the particulars and the contents. I'll give you some examples of this. To learn how to acknowledge, to allow, to let things be. And we can do this, actually learn to do it in any moment, in any circumstance, and it's a practice. So here's an example. A thought arises, not just any old thought, but maybe a thought that feels quite charged with feeling, with memory, with anxiety, with history. And we can see the inclination almost to dive into that thought pattern, can we? To to get kind of lost and to feel imprisoned. And it's not intentional. You know, it's not like we, oh yeah, this is a great one to dive right into. You know, let me volunteer for some more suffering here. You know, I just dive right in there and be lost. That's a wonder. It's not intentional. It's it's a habit. And we begin to associate and to build around it. Now, notice, and this might have happened to you today, that when you dive into that thought pattern, that a lot of other things start to fade and disappear, like your awareness of your body starts to fade. You know, you're you're not listening anymore. You know, sounds, you know, there could be a whole chorus happening, and we wouldn't even hardly even notice it. Um, But all your other sense stores start to fade away and disappear because of the intensity of the entanglement. Now, what would it be like in that moment if we could remember to reconnect with and to reclaim everything that has started to disappear? You know, if we could just make that shift in our attention. Ah, listening. Ah, the awareness of the body. Ah, the space around me, the space in the room. It's not that the difficult thought then just disappears, but it is arising in a landscape which is the whole of the moment, the entirety of the moment, rather than consuming the moment. And that's what happens with the entanglement. Now, you sit and a sound arises. It might be pleasant or it might be unpleasant. But notice again, if you just fix on and isolate the sound, again there's that sense of narrowing and building and the narrowing of awareness. You know, oh, what kind of bird is that? You know, uh, next time I'm going to bring my binoculars. You know, I wonder if they have any bird books here. You know, I'm going to read up on them. You know, we can sense that kind of contracting happen. Now, if it was an unpleasant sound, you know, maybe it's the garbage day, you know, and the garbage truck arises, which will happen, arrives. Again, you can see the way there's a possibility of the mind just contracting. 
oh, that shouldn't be happening. You know, a virtuous meditation center wouldn't allow garbage trucks, you know, or why don't they do it when I'm not sitting, you know? And there I was, it's really disturbing me. And again, you notice how everything else starts to disappear because of the entanglement and the contractedness. It's the same, you know, you, 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 ha- you, you disconnect from the body. Now, what we're experiencing in that moment is what I would call contractedness, the opposite of spaciousness. This tightening and narrowing of awareness. It's almost like a shrinking of vision. And in that shrinking of vision, the spaciousness feels sacrificed. Now, I would really encourage you, really encourage you to get a to get a felt sense of this, to get a felt sense of contractedness, to get a felt sense of that shrinking. Because when we're lost in it, it can feel like there's no way out. But to find the way out, we also need to discover how we get in there. And, and part of discovering how we get in there is actually getting this felt sense of what contractedness is. Now, I have to say that sometimes that contractedness can initially feel quite pleasant. You know, fantasy. You know, daydream. You know, some wonderful uh, romantic plan. It can initially feel quite pleasant. It's not necessarily always feeling unpleasant, but the flavor of the contractedness is the same whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So it's not about sort of, you know, just imagining it's all angst-filled. It's the process that we're talking about that so undermines our capacity for spaciousness. It's also very important, and I really encourage you, to get a felt sense of spaciousness. You know, what it's like to maybe just step out on the patio, on the patio out there and, and to look and to see and to be not taking hold of anything and not contracting anywhere. What it, what it might be like to sit and listen and to feel that, that fluidity of sound without interrupting it and to get a felt sense of the ease of that because that's actually what we're cultivating. That is what inspires us to come back, that quality of receptivity. I think it's also really important not to be not create dualisms in our mind and to imagine that spaciousness is somehow born of annihilating thoughts or experiences, because it's not. It's more, we're, if I put it really kind of in a kind of gross way, we're developing in our practice the habit of spaciousness rather than the habit of contractedness. Nowhere does ever the, the Buddha ever encourage us to find a kind of disembodied spaciousness and ease and receptivity. Nowhere does the Buddha ever encourage us that the, you know, the price we have to pay for freedom is to somehow annihilate life. Huh? That's not part of this teaching. What we are letting go of, or learning to let go of, is this tension, this awful tension of being pushed and pulled by one event after another. 
And if we can learn to let go of that tension, we start to see that spaciousness is imminent in every moment, not found outside of events or even outside of the habit of contractedness. We could almost say that in every moment of contractedness, it is a doorway to understanding the possibility of spaciousness. In the Dogen, who was a great teacher, he once said, treading along in this dreamlike, illusory world without looking for the traces I may have left. A cuckoo song beckons me to return home. Hearing this, I tilt my, se- my head to see who has told me to turn back. But do not ask me where I'm going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is my home. Where every step I take is my home. Now, there's no blame involved in getting caught in the dramas and the fabrications and the events and the thoughts. We can also wake up from the dream sometime after a long time. You know, sometimes we can be lost for a long time. But for most of us, waking up involves deeply recognizing that to cling to anything at all is really instantly to increase the amount of torment and pain in our hearts and lives. The Buddha summed up his teaching in just a few words. Nothing at all is to be clung to as me or mine. And to know this deeply deeply, is to instantly increase the amount of spaciousness we feel. I'll give you an example of this I encountered earlier. Well, it was actually last year. In, in my garden, I had the most beautiful, or there grew the most beautiful silver birch tree. It was about, oh, I don't know, 40 feet tall. It was the most fantastic silver birch tree. <laughs> I really loved it. I really loved it. And, and one day, you know, our neighbors came along and they'd consulted and our birch tree was eating through all the water and sewage pipes, and it had to be cut down. And my immediate response, and I, I didn't really do this physically, but it certainly all happened in my mind, was no way. As a, no way, no way is this happening. You know, well, no way is anybody touching this my tree. <laughs> it was almost like stamping my feet, you know, a major hissy fit. I mean, fortunately, it didn't last too long. It didn't last too long before I could see, of course, it was incredibly sad that this tree had to be cut down. But on the other hand, why would it, just because it was mine or even because it was beautiful, why would it be exempt from impermanence? You know, and the absence of the tree would turn into something else. And I could feel this on, a, on such a physical level, this shift in, from what was essentially wrong view to wise view. You know, and the unwise view was like nothing should touch this, this is mine, it should always stay the same and, you know, it, it get better. And the wise view, the shift that could make was, yes, of course loss is sad. Of course endings are sad. But there is also the the grace of knowing the truth of that. And it was almost to see that 
that the loss didn't have to be a gatekeeper of the peace of my heart. The loss didn't have to be a gatekeeper of a sense of freedom. I mean, I could have obsessed about this for weeks. And then it would have been a gatekeeper of my own sense of freedom. And there's something, uh, you know, there's something learning from that birch tree, you know, that applies to the body, to the mind, to everything in this life. Because one way of seeing our life is like a river of causes and conditions. And some of those causes and conditions began long before we were ever born and will continue long after we die. And in truth, our life, our life is an event that is born of countless other events. You know, I mean, you know, my mother and father decided to get it together one night, you know, and here I am. I didn't choose it. You know, I didn't choose to be born into this particular body or this particular set of circumstances. You know, in a way, it was causes and conditions coming together. And it's precious, each of our lives. Of course, our, each of our lives, is, as all lives are precious. But I think we really need to understand this kind of flow of causes and conditions because we tend to mark our lives and our happiness and our sorrow by the vast number of events that happen within this framework, this river of life, gain and loss, achievement and failure, pleasure and pain, illness and health, moments of excitement, moments of fear, things we do, the things we choose not to do. Our mind is often full of all the events that have passed and all of those yet to come, or we're preoccupied with the events of the present. If you look at your mind right now, or look at your mind during the last sitting, in truth there's almost limitless ground for preoccupation and contractedness, isn't there? You know, as a Tibetan teacher once said, you know, preoccupations will not end until the moment we die, but they end when we put them down. That is their nature. Within wise understanding, within this river of events we call our life, there's also limitless ground for spaciousness. What is an event? What is, what is it that makes a particular set of causes and conditions in this life into an event? We see, you know, yesterday it rained the coming together of a certain set of conditions and causes. This afternoon, for a time, the sun came out. We don't know how tomorrow will be. We're actually not really in control of many of these causes and conditions. But we're also not helpless. Some of the causes, some of the events in our lives are shaped by intention. They got you here. Some of the events in our lives are caused by reactivity, by fear, by blame. But let's look a little bit more specifically at what's happening right now and our own relationship to events. Now, isn't it a truth that we often really do see ourselves at, as being at the center of the world? <laughs> Strange delusion, isn't it? that things either happen to me or I make things happen. I mean, what an amazing delusion. 
And yet it's kind of how we live, isn't it? I'm at the center of the, the world, like, like I'm the sun and the whole universe is revolving around me. It's so interesting, that one. And it's really hard to imagine a life that's not marked by events. Who would we be? What would we get us out of bed in the morning? You know, give meaning and direction. We, we, you know, we think we'd be nobody because our sense of who we are in any moment is also an event shaped by other events. You know, an unhappy thought arises and I'm unhappy. An anxious feeling arises and I'm anxious. You know, a happy thought arises and I'm happy. We see those events coexisting, codependent. You know, one event arising, shaping the event of me in the moment. And within this, we, we often really do insert, insert that unfortunate piece of clinging that this is me and this is mine and this is what belongs to me. Now, what would our life look like if we took that optional condition? of clinging out of this flow of conditions. Events are made by isolating certain configurations of conditions, and then we forget about spaciousness. You know, here, okay, here's a big one, lunch. <laughs> you know, on a retreat where there don't really seem to be all that many events or happenings, you know, lunch features as a big event. Now, suppose you get down there and, you know, you've been going down the hill with this sense of anticipation, you know, and a little excitement maybe. Um, and you get there and they, that something is served that you really don't like. Now, how do you respond? Equanimity? <laughs> or is it more this sense of unhappiness, you know? I don't want this. I don't like this. And you can feel the unhappy self being born. And doesn't it create a sense of time, of past and present and future? We lean back into the past. And we remember all the times we've been unhappy. <laughs> then we lean forward into the future, imagining all our future miserable lunches. <laughs> and, and all the happiness, unhappiness we have yet to experience, what comes next? You know, I love it in this practice, in one of the traditions it says, in this practice there is no next. The next are the events we're imagining. Can we just rest in the seeing? Can we just rest in the seeing? Another example. Have you ever looked at your watch, of course, very discreetly, in the middle of a sitting or a walking, and imagined the better or the worse next? Huh? Oh, there's 20 minutes to go. 20 more nexts of this. <laughs> Or you might think, oh, two minutes to go. Oh, a happy next when this is over. Now, what is actually the truth? The bell goes. Guess what? We're still here. With this body, this mind, the bell didn't really make a lot of difference. Maybe for a moment. 
could we also just relax and say just this? These are the conditions of the moment. There will be another configuration. The river will keep flowing. Notice the word forever means nothing really. The words forever and always are truly signals of how disconnected we have become from this river of changing conditions and causes. We will still sit, we will still breathe, we will still walk, we will still think, and perhaps in the midst of all of that, we can connect with that easeful, allowing spaciousness. It is much easier to swim with the flow of this river than against it. I heard somebody say something recently I loved so much. They, they said they, they went for a walk along the harbor side and saw all of the ships sh- safely sheltered within the harbor. But that's not what ships are meant for. Perhaps if we can really move with that flow of conditions and changes, at peace with it, perhaps we begin to live the life we wish to live. Perhaps if we can find and cultivate the spaciousness, we can start to live the peace and the calmness that we long for. Spaciousness has so much to do with the art of not constructing, not fabricating, not contracting. In a way, it's an art of resting and a kind of eventlessness. Even though the events, they come and they go, they arise and pass, some lovely, some not so lovely, the nature of the spaciousness, the nature of awareness, in a way the essence of mindfulness, it's actually eventless because there's nothing that's contracted around. It is the contractedness that creates the events. The seeing allows a kind of eventlessness within all the configurations within all the comings together and the disappearings. It's kind of like it's a releasing of the contractedness. It's like you would never read two lines of a book and think it's a whole story, would we? But we could look at one small configuration of events and uh, of conditions in the moment and think it's a whole story. I'm like this, you are like that. It cannot be. I will always be like this. This is forever. It cannot be. And the spaciousness is opening into that, the simple seeing, the holding. And to get a felt sense of that. You know, learning to, uh, learning to be mindful of the mind is really the forerunner of spaciousness. And of course, in some ways, uh, we're, we're kind of mindful of the mind, but, but we're not. It's often a resistant mindfulness. It's wanting a different mind. Hmm? It's a mindfulness flavored by prejudice. We want the mind to the heart to be different than it is right now. But to be mindful of the mind is to be spacious around the mind, to be spacious around the heart, not demanding that anything goes away, not demanding that anything stays, but to kind of unlayer the, the layers of dullness and cloudiness, to get a sense to know your world of this moment, Many worlds of this moment have been built today. And many of those worlds have already passed. 
Have you noticed that? It's so important to know that. That the world of the moment is built and constructed and, of course, it is changed as conditions change. The world of anxiety, of worry, of fantasy, of imagining. We learn actually to allow them to be, to surround them with not just spaciousness, but the knowing it is the world of the moment. To learn to ease the contractedness, to rest in the scene just as the sky holds the sun and the moon and the stars. Spaciousness holds all of those worlds and it's not bereft of wisdom, it is wisdom. It's knowing the forming and the releasing. When we expand, can expand into that knowing, that spaciousness, really what we see is the Four Noble Truths because we see actually in many ways how suffering can be born in the moment. But this too is not clung to as me or mine, but is seen pain is pain, sadness is sadness, anxiety is anxiety. It is a universal story. Sometimes we see the causes of suffering, how sometimes the causes of suffering really are the contractedness around the conditions of the moment. And when we can ease that contractedness, we see that bodies do get sick. Minds can be distracted and lost. Hearts can be broken. But we also see that contractedness really is what bars our acceptance and embracing and grace within those changes. We can also see the end of suffering. When we take out the me and the mine and that contracted heart, we can be with what is, we can soften into what is, we can really know how to embrace what is. And we see the path. We see the path of learning to cultivate and to rest in that spaciousness amidst all things in all moments. Ajahn Chah, he was a great forest teacher, he said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. The world will come and go in that stillness. This is the happiness of a Buddha. If we take just a moment quietly together. May all beings rest in ease. May all beings abide in spaciousness. May all beings abide in calm.
kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.